welcome to New Age Raid, a podcast about spirituality in the modern age. My name is Brody, and I shall be your host. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of New Age Raid. Um, this one's going to be a little bit of a bigger one. Uh, the subject kind of proved to be a little bit more, um, <laughs> well, just more material to go over. Um, so that being said, uh, let's go ahead and go over the outline. So what we'll be expecting, uh, like always, we'll be covering the basics and the history and origins um, and most important info about journeying. So that's this week's topic. Um, after that, I'll talk about my own personal experience with it, what really worked well for me and why I keep doing it. Um, after that, we'll talk about the useful tech, how to do it, important tips or techniques, and then how to integrate it into your own spiritual practice along with some additional resources if you want for further study and investigation. Let's go ahead and get started. Okay, so the history of journeying. So this turned out to be pretty complex, uh, mostly because what we're talking about is a pretty large spectrum of human experience. Um, and so to get started, just kind of know that it's a little bit more complex. It's hard to pin down what journeying is, um, especially since my own definitions of it have been somewhat expanded since I started studying it. Uh, there is a neo-shamanic practice that goes by the same name, and it is related, um, but by no means is that particular practice expansive enough to describe the whole practice of what I consider journeying. Um, simply explained, Journeying is an inhibitory exploration of physical places, the, mytho the mythological, the imaginal, and the fictional. Uh, so that's kind of a really uh, narrowed down definition, um, but it doesn't give as many details I'd like uh, as I'd like. So uh, the experiences that fall along this spectrum can be anything from lucid dreaming out-of-body experiences, daydreams, visions, normal dreams, active imagination. Uh, the main contention I want to make here is that dreaming and anything related is, uh, well, the thing that I don't agree with is that dreaming and anything related to it is the brain sorting through the day's events or a meaningless jumble of memories. So we're operating from the presumption that things are meaningful, not random. Um, now, journeying as broadly defined works with symbols and metaphors more than normal reality does. So what may seem weird may simply be communicating itself in symbol and metaphor. So when it comes to journeying, we're dealing with things that don't often fall into perception as we are used to it in our waking normal lives. In our waking normal lives, um, things get weird. Uh, obviously, the history of such a thing is pretty much as long as human history is. We've always had dreams, and until recently, I think we almost always attributed some kind of meaning to them. Um, our most ancient ancestors certainly did. Uh, the Aborigines referred to it simply as the dreaming, and they considered it a part of an act of perpetual creating. They composed songs upon waking based upon the content of their dreams. Uh, there is evidence of dream interpretation among ancient Sumerians and Mesopotamians, and they considered them prophetic and useful for divination. Uh, Judaism and subsequently Christianity after it also believed dreams to have import. Many of the prophets of the Bible had important dreams from God, such as Jacob's Ladder. Um, so even for those of us who come from Christian backgrounds, that should sound familiar, um, that 
one of the ways that God often communicated with his servants was through dreams. Uh, what ended up being more relevant to me in terms of history, so we're going to, that's ancient stuff, <laughs> we're going to pull far more closer to modern history. Um, so what ended up being more relevant for me was the work of Carl Jung. So Carl Jung is a prominent psychologist in his own right. He was one of the contemporaries of Sigmund Freud. And one of the principal methods that he used for his own self-exploration of the unconscious was what he called active imagination. So Jung was very much interested in the unconscious and how to solve issues in the unconscious by making them conscious. So he experimented upon himself and in so doing discovered a lot about his own um, unconscious mind and how it worked and what exactly was down there. Jung was plagued with recurring dreams of destruction and death around 1913 before World War I. Interestingly, many others had a similar dream, including the author J.R.R. Tolkien. These visions continued for a while and caused him to think that he was going mad until after a lecture one day he heard the news of the beginnings of World War I. With this, he knew he was no longer going mad, so he kind of had a weird reaction to finding about about World War One, and that he was happy about it because it confirmed to him that he wasn't going crazy. Uh, but he instantly surmised that he had been interacting with something that he called the collective unconscious. Uh, this could be simply defined as, a share, as shared structures of the unconscious, which are shared among all of us as humans, that there's something that... It's knowledge and structures that we pass down to our children. They're inherent in human life. Uh, so these visions of war and death that he had seen were part of his communication with this collective unconscious. He continued to do more of his work on, on active imagination. He took detailed notes and paintings of what he experienced. All of this culminated in what is called the Red Book. So this is actually a fairly recently published thing that we've known about for a while that he had this Red Book, but it never got uh, released by his heirs until fairly recently. And this is a collection of his records of his work with active imagination. Um, for him, it was a form of meditation that allowed the conscious mind to take a back seat and let the unconscious play out while his conscious mind was occupied following along. The whole point was to allow the unconscious to speak. So he inhibited the conscious mind while not completely kicking it out. As in, you know, he didn't fall asleep to do this. He was still conscious and following along. Um, and then we have a similar practice to his showing up in a similar way with neo-shamanism. So we talked about this before. Um, Neo-shamanism is a New Age practice that has its roots in the work of authors Michael Harner and Carlos Castaneda, who kind of derive their practices in a somewhat dubious manner. They both claim to be taught by masters um, from indigenous peoples, um, and these practices seem to be loosely based on the practices of indigenous North American peoples, even though the term shaman has roots in Russia and East Asia, and it was then applied by anthropologists to a much larger range of spiritual systems. Basically, shamanism, or the word shaman, was used to describe anything that was viewed as a savage form of spirituality. And I say savage in quotes because obviously 
I don't believe that these spiritual systems are in any way primitive at all. In fact, I would argue that they were much more advanced than us in many respects. But it, the term shaman was applied to any spiritual system that had some kind of practice of interacting with spirits for healing or divination or those kind of things. Um, it paints, it's problematic, and then it paints a lot of diverse practices with a broad brush. And as I said, these authors being claimed to be taught by indigenous leaders, they ended up being refuted by <laughs> the referenced peoples. Um, so in essence, if one is going to <clears throat> plunder for useful tech, as we're doing, it's important that you pay proper respect to the culture of origin of many of these practices. And um, Harnar and Castaneda probably were not so great at that. However, reading their books and following the practices that they suggest will still land you on the proper path. So we have this weird thing where it's effective, but it's also problematic. Uh, Neo-shamanic practices involve doing something similar to active imagination, but also employing use of drums, rattles, dance, or entheogens to achieve an altered state of consciousness in which one would then journey. Uh, during said journey, it is often prescribed to find one's power animal or guides, which is also slightly problematic, but also not terribly far from the mark. Um, so we probably shouldn't use words like spirit animal because they're terms used specifically to describe something in indigenous practices. Um, so shamanism took the term power animal, and I prefer to simply refer to them as, you know, spirit teams or, or guides, that these are entities that you encounter in these journeys that are helpful to you. So I'm only kind of talking about this stuff. We'll get more into it. It's for me, this is definitely weird territory where people are either going to start to think that I'm crazy or or you'll start to think you're crazy if you do it. Um, that's something that we'll, we'll go over a little bit more in depth after we get through this history. Um, so that's kind of the overview of the history of it. Now, I'm going to add J.R. Tolkien to the mix because I love him. He's my hero. And also there's some interesting evidence <laughs> with relation to him. Obviously, we mentioned that he was having these dreams at the same time as Carl Jung. His was notably a, like a flood of carnage, and it disturbed him greatly. And then he wrote a story, um, I think it's called The Akalabeth, which is a story about this race of men that lived on an island, and they were prohibited from going towards the land of the gods, and they were destroyed by a flood. So you see this flood motif quite often. Um, but that's he remembers writing that story and then never having those dreams, um, or at least they were quite reduced for him. He didn't have those nightmares anymore. His son had them after him, so which is another interesting thing. But I'm meandering. So the thing about Tolkien is that the world of Middle-earth for him was completely real. He often described it that way. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if much of its creation had some kind of origin in either journeying or visions or dreams, even. Um, he kind of hints at that in his essay on fairy stories. But he never comes clean as to how he came about his ideas for that. Uh, there's an interesting bit in the movie Tolkien, which I recommend. I know that some people have some issues with the artistic license that they took, but it shows him, you know, fighting in World War One and seeing 
kind of these otherworldly visions of Balrogs and monsters as he fought in the war. And I think that's kind of appropriate to describe the visionary person he was. And so I would argue that Middle-earth is by far one of the most complex and detailed fantasy worlds ever created. And the idea that he derived it from a divine source within himself is to me a very attractive idea. Um, and the fact that he was having parallel dreams with Jung and others of a flood of carnage is kind of another indicator of him being that visionary person. So that's just something that I find <laughs> particularly interesting. Um, once you get into some of the practices I'm into, we look at creation as something particularly divine in origin. That one simple way to define magic for me is taking something that's completely mental or spiritual in nature that's not physically real and making it so. So one could argue that J.R.R. Tolkien very much made Middle-earth real by writing it down and publishing the books. And it's something that has an effect, an actual real physical effect on tons of people because it was such a, I mean, it was definitely an important part of my childhood and my adulthood, that book. Um, well, those books, I mean, I'm talking The Silmarillion, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, everything else he ever wrote. I mean, I just eat it up. So that's that to me is, is a form of magic. He's taking thoughts and ideas from his head and projecting them upon the whole world. So, <laughs> um, But to get back to the main point, in summary, we have this history of human beings interacting with something decidedly other throughout our entire history be it through dreams or active imagination or other means, we've been dealing with this kind of imaginary, otherworldly, mythical realm throughout our history. And each of us has our own unique experience with it. And I would argue that since we spend such a significant part of our lives in dreams during sleep, so you most often dream in REM sleep, and REM is about, I want to say, two to three hours of your sleep each night, you add those hours up over your lifetime, and that's a lot of interesting time that you could be doing something useful with, <laughs> is, what, is what we're getting at. And especially if you add to that time using certain practices, uh, such as active imagination, so when you can do it when you're awake, and uh, but also practices that help you make more note of your dreams and more meaning out of them. So it's it's been something that's been particularly useful to me in terms of spirituality. So with that, we'll move on to my experience and we'll talk about how I've ended up using it and how it's helped me on my own particular spiritual journey. So yeah, I, I think... In terms of, there's a bunch of different ways you can view what's happening during journey work. You can either adopt the perspective that it's merely psychology, that it's helpful information that 
proves to be useful to you, um, guides your life path in some way, or you can kind of consider it as something completely real in the sense that the people and beings that you interact with during it are real, like spirits, um, that they have some kind of substance that's not based in the physical, but that doesn't make them unreal. Um, which, as I continue to study things, is where I find myself going. Which, like I said, sounds like crazy talk. And I have a hard time talking about what I experienced during journeys because it sounds like stuff I made up. And I think that was the hardest hurdle for me when I started was I would be having these experiences that were being, that were powerful, that they were emotional, they were affecting me deeply. And then simultaneously being like, this is made up. Like I'm using my imagination, basically. It's all coming from me. However, I think part of the transition into using this as an effective form of spirituality is taking your imagination seriously. It's one of those unique things that we can do as humans that we can literally imagine anything. I was reminded of a quote from Milton in uh, Paradise Lost where he says, the mind is essentially... Um, capable of making a heaven or a hell of its own creation. And you hear stories about people going through very difficult times, things that are almost impossible to comprehend in terms of pain that they suffered, like during World War II and concentration camps and other similar things, and how they got through it. And they often talk about that they held on to that power of their mind to when their surroundings were utterly hellish, they were able to retreat into their own minds into a place that was peaceful and beautiful and help them get through it. And there is a certain amount of, like I said, you start to feel a little bit insane. <laughs> I think Jung felt, felt it. I think anyone who gets experienced with it kind of starts to feel it. And you kind of have to get a firm sense of having your foot in both worlds, basically. Like, I never lost touch with the fact that my physical reality is also just as real. Um, it's bringing those two things together, this spiritual realm, imaginal realm, and putting it on the same footing with the physical that's difficult. You kind of rebel against it. But it does no harm per se, to your physical reality. Like, I've been doing this for months now, and I haven't um, I haven't started a cult or anything. So, <laughs> so we'll just uh, talk about it. So this is, this is me being vulnerable here. So I started doing the power animal meditation specifically. You can find guided meditations to do precisely this on YouTube or podcasts have them too that it's someone guiding you through a scenario and then they let your imagination do the work for what animal or guide appears to you. And now mine was unguided. It was just um, 
uh, drumming tracks, which, like I said, I came up in this neo-shamanistic practice, and the drums are effective. I don't know why, they just are. Um, so you'd listen to drumming and then go in, so to say. So what I do is I get into a meditative state. This is where meditation becomes useful, um, and that you can kind of shut down your conscious mind a little bit, make it be quiet. And then from there, imagine a imaginary version of yourself, essentially, walking through a scenario, and then whatever pops up in the imagination, you just follow it, you go with it. And so I soon, like, you know, in looking to my power animal, it was funny, the first thing that showed up was an owl, but I got instantly the sense that the owl was not said power animal, and... Uh, the owl was leading me to said power animal. So it took me to place and there was a, a badger that showed up. And so that was it. Like as soon as I saw him, I was like, that's, that's the one. Um, now it's funny because my guide began as a badger and it's since morphed into something more while still retaining that image. Now I could explain that, but it would <laughs> move into some, real woo-woo territory that I'm not sure everyone's ready for. I hope we'll get there, but I think it requires a little bit more context. But regardless, badgers are always an animal that I felt connected with in hindsight. So in hindsight's 2020, so this could be, a lot of people would say this is confirmation bias, but um, for one, I view them as emblematic of a shared trait that I see in myself. And this, I kind of have this dogged and stubborn determination to lay claim to what I want. And badgers have the same thing. Uh, but I just, the difference is, is I have to want it, want it. That's the trick. Um, before my mission, I left my now wife behind for two years while I served, which within Mormon culture is considered fairly foolish. Um, it's viewed as a distraction to the calling for a missionary. And most ended in that dreaded Dear John now, I had a youth leader who was speaking to me and my wife after we were engaged. And this was so long ago, sometimes I misremember the details, but I do remember him saying this specifically. And that he said, I would have doubted any other young man could have pulled it off, but Brody, but Brody gets what he wants. And in this particular regard, I kind of have several large binders of letters I wrote by hand to prove exactly that. Um, I knew who I wanted to marry and I made it happen. For during my mission, making that happen was sending large handwritten letters every week. And um, some of them are quite cringeworthy now that I look back on them, but it worked at the time. So, so in that sense, I identify with badgers. Um, as long as it's something that I actually want, like I said. Beyond that, the only sports team I ever played for was uh, the Badgers. Uh, never played for never played for another team because <laughs> I suck at sports. But the one team I got on was was the Badgers. So um, I think the reason that power animals work so well. So this is more of a rational thinking of it, is because animals are a very rich source of symbolism. So I can say the name of almost any animal. We can immediately assign certain attributes to it, 
which that animal embodies. You think of owls, you think of wisdom. Eagles, freedom, lions, power, and leadership. Um, so it's no wonder to me that when I began journeying through the unconscious, or that when we do it, that our teachers and guides often show up as animals because they're powerful symbols. Um, however, I mean, we shouldn't limit the guides or the spirit team to just animal figures. I just think they make particularly useful symbols and teachers in the sense that almost any animal you can think of is a powerful teacher of one attribute or another. Um, you have many people in the neo-shamanism practice who you know, claim that their power animals also change over time, which would make sense. So, so I had this experience where I was doing this. It was being effective and important and emotional to me and having to deal with the fact that I thought I was going absolutely batshit insane. Um, because it is, of all the practices that I do, this one gets, gets you in that weird territory <laughs> pretty quick. But it's also tremendously effective, so that's why I don't want to shy away from talking about it. What happened was I was put in a position where I needed to come to terms with that level of strangeness in my life. And what it came down to was what we talked about in the first episode, and that we don't have any good answers to what reality is. Science had failed to explain it in my mind. You know, like we talked about, you get into parallel universes, um, multiple worlds, quantum superposition stuff, and you just get the sense we don't know what's going on here. <laughs> Beyond that, I thought back on my years as a Mormon and the things that I believed in as a Mormon. So we believed in miracles, that people could be cured of cancer through their faith, that that we were all communicating with a divine being who could, you know, grant us revelation. So I look back at those now from the perspective I'm at, and it's just like Mormons and many other types of Christianity, they're all practicing, well, not just Christianity, but lots of religions are practicing what I would consider magical practices. In Catholicism, you have a man who basically and if you read it up, they literally believe this, that they're turning bread and wine into the flesh and blood of Christ. Um, that That's not figurative. It's something that they literally believe. Um, I forget the word that's used to describe that. Um, but regardless, we as human beings have been doing lots of weird stuff religiously for a long time. And so the practice of taking my imagination seriously um, within that context is not that crazy. So I kept it up, kept doing it, uh, kept reading up on it. And kept a record of things that happened in, in those journeys. And I made a point of using it as 
uh, as the ancient people once did, as a form of maybe not divination so much. I wasn't trying to tell the future or anything, um, but more like answering questions. So I would have questions about law of attraction type stuff or the magic stuff that I was studying with the occult and going and having and doing a journey on it, you know, going and asking certain guides, not just, you know, the badger that we mentioned, but lots of things and asking them questions and having them explain things to me. And sometimes I would doubt those answers because I'm like, well, it's coming from me. But even if it is coming from me or you, if you choose to do this, it's, I think it come, it allows us to access a part of our <laughs> wisdom as human beings that we normally don't have easy access to. Um, so I would find answers in these journeys, but I'd also find great comfort in them. You know, I would have days that were difficult and problematic and I would do a journey and the simple act of conversing with one of your spirit guides or your spirit team and having them give you the words that you need and the comfort that you need. And it would flip my whole day around. So it worked on a personal level. That's what it comes down to for a lot of this stuff, regardless of how crazy it is, it's effective. Um, and amazingly effective on a personal level. I don't claim to go on journeys and like affect reality outside of myself. Um, simply because I haven't had that experience yet, but it very much helps me to process what I'm going through in life. And it turns it into a completely different narrative. I think that's the fun thing about it, is that when your life <laughs> is chock full of boring shit, like your day job and the muck and the grind that is modern life, it helps to have a part of your life that is quite magical and as an exciting narrative. So journeying definitely ends up being that a lot. I talk to entities in my journeys that are interesting and cool um, from my own perspective, but also give me advice and guidance that fills my life with not just a sense of magic, but also purpose and meaning that it didn't have before I started. And obviously, I'm intensely private about it. I've shared one very small portion of what I've experienced in there um, in, in journeying work, but, and I expect everyone else to do the same. Essentially what I'm doing is red booking like Carl Jung did, getting in touch with my own unconscious if that's what it is, the unconscious, or if it's interacting with a wider realm of reality. 
because that's what we're questioning, right? Is is what is reality, and does the th do the things that we imagine and the things that we dream about do those have as much of an importance as our physical lives do? And I'm basically making the argument that they do. So we see this practice in the Aborigines of composing a song based off of their dreams. There's a tribe called the Runa that if they dream about killing a pig, then they have to go kill the pig. They take what happens in their dreams and in their imaginations and they make it real. Which, as I stated earlier, to me is a form of magic. And so I've been practicing that on a, on a level as well. That, for example, if I go into a journey and I'm gifted something, I try my very best to make that real. So if I get gifted a piece of jewelry by a guide, I will buy it up on Amazon or in a shop or whatever, <laughs> and I'll wear it. Um, because it was imbued with meaning in the in the journey, and so it becomes meaningful here as well, kind of a thing. And, and I think that's that may be the sole benefit to me is it just makes life more interesting and meaningful. Um, but uh, particularly lately, I've had journeys that I feel definitely have guided me in life decisions. Uh, the culmination of this podcast is very much a result of that journey, of those journeys that I've been on and those interactions that I've had in the sense that not very long ago, I would have said I was pretty resigned to my shitty day job. And you interact with the spirits enough and they basically demand that you do something more with your life. They will tell you that there's more that you're capable of. Um, they help you do it. And yeah, life is just <laughs> much more interesting and guided and purposeful. And that's the whole point of spirituality in a sense to me is that you're finding things that are unique to the human experience that if you purposely explore them and use them, they do imbue life with a certain sense of beauty and, and meaning. And so I think dreams and imagination are a resource that we ignore in our modern lives and we should not in the sense that it is definitely one of the most unique and powerful things that we do as human beings. And I would argue that that imagination that we have has been the deciding factor in creating the most beautiful things that we as human beings have created. For me, I think of like Middle Earth and the fact that it wouldn't exist if a man hadn't taken his imagination seriously. But, you know, these works of art, sculptures, movies, comic books, 
the stories that we read, you know, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, the, you know, superheroes, things like that, they all stem from this human imagination. And we take those seriously. But for some reason, we don't take our own imagination seriously. And I think that's the thing that I'm trying to change, <laughs> is that my life has been enriched and enlivened by taking my own imagination seriously and putting it on par with my physical reality. Now, obviously, I'm not going to start a cult or do anything weird because it happened in a spirit journey. But beyond that, they typically don't tell you to do things like that. I mean, not typically. I've never been told to do anything like that. Um, <clears throat> they, they usually just want to help, and they want to make your life more exciting. They don't... Uh, yeah, I don't want to prescribe this <laughs> practices, and I don't want to get the sense out there that this is in any way dangerous. I don't think it is. I think as long as you are considerate into how you make it real, then you're going to be fine. But also, I mean, that's a part of part of my journey was feeling a little bit crazy and having to come to terms with it. Um, especially in senses that, you know, like in my marriage, I share things that happen and I talk to my wife about things that I experienced during journey work as well. I still feel silly doing it, but we've gotten to this point where <laughs> my real life is affected by the things that I journey with in a positive way. So that's what we're going for is, is positive ways that it helps you. That's not to say that you won't have journeys that do deal with things that are negative. I think we've all experienced trauma and doing journey work tied to it is a way to deal with it. So it's not always super positive, but I think the outcome is always positive. At least you want it to be. So journey work can deal with stuff that is negative or traumatic in your life and then Hopefully through that work, you can achieve a positive result. That's the, the point of what we're trying to work on. So I can continue rambling for quite a while on this particular subject, but we want to go ahead and move on into practice, how you can apply in your own life, and then you'll, you'll get a better sense of what I'm talking about by doing it. And uh, so we'll go ahead and move on to the practice segment of the podcast. So practice, as far as how to do this, I kind of described it in its basic detail already. Um, but what we're looking at is the inhibitory. That keyword I used to describe what journeying is, is an inhibitory exploration. So inhibitory means basically making your conscious take a back seat in that you're going to seek a way to calm down or attain an altered state of consciousness. Now, I'm not going to recommend use of any entheogens or drugs or any of that, at least none that's illegal. It's obviously wherever you are, do that in the way that's legal. <laughs> um, but you don't need 
drugs or anything to attain that state, even though they can be helpful. Um, until recently, things like hallucinogenics and psilocybin weren't illegal, and their and our ancestors made use of them in a constructive way to do this stuff. So that's something to keep in mind. But also, it's not um, something that you need. So I've been doing it without it. So <laughs> um, even though the idea of using some of those substances to achieve a better um, or more intense experience is attractive to me, it's not something that's happened yet. So that being said, the I'll tell you what my method is, and then you can kind of find alternate ways if they work better for you. Um, I'll kind of describe some of the various methods that other people use for journeying. So for me, it's simply a matter of getting in a meditative state. So I usually do a simple breath meditation where I just count my breaths up to 10, then start over, count from 1 to 10 again, um, counting each inhale is 1, and then exhale is 2. So those of you who are familiar with meditation through kind of the practices that um, I described last podcast that will sound familiar to you if you've used Headspace or anything like that. And I always use drumming tracks that sometimes they're a combination of drums and rattles and music just because it helps to get into a calm state. But also I feel like the drum beat ends up being lulling in a sense that helps you attain that altered state of consciousness. So I have my own drumming tracks that I use that have downloaded to my phone and I use it that way. As a resource, there's plenty of options on Insight Timer that work if you just search for shamanic drumming. Many times you're going to have to attach the word shamanic, even though we've talked about the problematic nature of that word. Um, but if you search for shamanic journey on YouTube or drumming tracks, you'll find tons and just kind of listen through them and see which one works best for you. Typically, this whole process takes me around 30 minutes. Um, well, more like 20, 25 of where I'll begin kind of get calm and then start actively doing the journey work. So since I was up, I was kind of taught in the shamanic practice, the neo-shamanic practice, the main method that was taught to me is to, they have a three worlds theory that there's an upper middle and lower world upper could be described as kind of a heavenly place middle as here interacting with maybe like real people or dead people even on the middle like on our world and then under the underworld is the third and that's where you're supposed to go to interact with animal spirits and it's a more of a natural setting um oddly enough it's not like hades underworld kind of thing but for me, what I was taught to do is to find a portal. And so it's some kind of natural opening that you're familiar with. Like it could be, for me, it's a stump in my backyard that's just got a hole in it. And that's where I go. And then to envision yourself traveling down or under. Now that's kind of evolved for me in the sense that usually it doesn't matter where I am. I just imagine myself going 
down, not because I'm going to go to the underworld per se. I go wherever I want. I think the three worlds thing that neo-shamanism teaches is not, uh, it's restrictive. <laughs> so I usually end up finding some kind of portal and then allowing myself to be taken wherever the imagination leads. You'll find that you quickly develop a kind of home base of sorts in your imagination that's either like an anti-room or like a preparatory room where you go before you kind of let the imagination take um, control of things. I Now, some of us, we've coined the term astral temple um, or home base kind of thing. And so I definitely have a setting that's kind of representative of my own ideal home and locale. And I will often interact with things directly from there. Um, but oftentimes I'll go through the portal. And for me, it's like a literal portal. Like it's kind of sci-fi, stargate kind of looking thing. Um, but less science fiction and more fantasy looking. And I'll go through it and wherever I end up is where I end up. And then I'll journey from there. So what you're essentially doing is, as I described, letting your imagination call the shots. Sometimes it's not easy in the sense that things aren't going to come up as readily. So in those cases, you just stay in a calm state and pay attention. And so if uh, this is describing as you're waiting for something to move. So if suddenly your brain bubbles up an image of an animal or a particular place, then you follow it. You go where it leads. Um, and then you let things happen. So it's essentially like daydreaming on purpose, <laughs> letting your imagination bubble up and following it where it takes you. And we're tr But you're not trying to direct the storyline yourself. You're letting your imagination kind of bring things to the surface and following where those go. And I usually do that for about 20 to 25 minutes. A lot of these drumming tracks on YouTube are for the specific purpose, and so they'll have what's called a callback. They'll ring a little bell or something to let you know, hey, journey time's up. Go ahead and like mentally journey back to yourself. The idea is very much related to out-of-body experiences and that like you do imagine a spirit form of you going about and doing things while your body lays in bed or wherever you're doing it, kind of chilled out. And then the idea is that you go back to your body. Now, I know there's like people who worry about like, how oh, will my spirit get lost? No, that won't happen or anything like that. I, some of you may not have been worried about that and are worried about it now, but don't be. <laughs> um, your spirit doesn't really have a way of going away from your body per se, unless you die. Um, and that's not something we're... See, we're getting into real weird territory. Um, but regardless, it's not something that needs to be worried about. Um, but yeah, for me, it's just getting meditative using the drumming track. Imagining my imaginary self um, going places and then following what pops up. Now, people are going to appear, might be people you know, people alive, people dead, people um, you are aware of or people you've never known 
or met before. So it all comes up, which for me is interesting. The fact that um, personages that I have no real life experience with often do show up. And I think that's lends a little bit of legitimacy to it. And the fact that like, you're not just experiencing random things that your brain holds on to in terms of memory. Like it, Sometimes it does create things out of whole cloth. So that being said, you just follow it for however long you want to, or once you feel like you've gotten the message that you needed out of the experience. A lot of them talk, uh, a lot of these journeys, you can compare them to TV shows in the sense that some episodes or some journeys are super pivotal, exciting things happen um, that move the narrative forward. And others are a little bit more boring. Um, they don't... Sometimes what happens in there doesn't seem to be meaningful. Sometimes you fall asleep. And an honest part of what happens is I try and do it during the middle of the day when I'm most alert so that doesn't happen. But getting in such a calm state often naturally leads you to drift in and out a bit. And so sometimes those journeys can be a little bit... Um, not as meaningful because you're not as actively engaged. There's a fine balance of letting your imagination lead you and actively following it around, but not controlling the storyline. So that sounds, I don't know if that sounds descriptive enough, but that's <laughs> the best I can do. Um, now, Jung when he did his active imagination work, he did it writing. So he would do it at his desk, kind of just get calm and then write down what happened. And that's why the red book is a thing is because he was just writing it down. I don't write things down until after I'm through the journey. So I let my imagination just kind of go. For me, it's a very visual experience. And that's something that is a skill that you develop is the ability to kind of visualize it intensely in your own mind, but also not just visualize, but engage your senses in it, that it does help to kind of imagine how the surfaces would feel, what that setting would smell like, what the sounds around you would be um, kind of just trying to engage all of your senses into it. And that makes it much more um, vivid and you'll get better at it as you go along. But I let myself do it all in my own head before, and then once I'm finished and, you know, had a drink of water or kind of centered myself back from doing it, I will write down what happened just to keep a record. Because the idea is that these things are important and meaningful and kind of guidance in, in a sense, and so you'll want to keep record of what happened and then how you ended up applying it. I think that's the second part that's important is applying what you've seen or heard or the message that you've got in the journey. So like I said, if, if you get something from something in there, then you can make it real. Um, especially if they tell you <laughs> specifically, this is this, and this is what it represents or, well, usually they won't be that literal. Um, they won't tell you like this represents power or whatever. It's just like, we're dealing with symbols. So you'll kind of naturally know what they mean. Um, but yeah, make it real. Um, obviously writing it down is the first step in that, in that like it's now something that exists in physical reality because it's on a piece of paper or on your phone. Um, 
it exists. But also, like, if you have a question and you go and you feel like you got a good answer, then go ahead and act on it, as long as it's not... I mean, we're following basic moral tenets here of not hurting anybody or harming anybody else. And so if you get an answer that feels good to you and doesn't hurt anybody else, go for it. That's the gist of it, basically. Um, do what works for you. Experiment with other things like writing it down. Or some of you may have trouble with visualization. So some people do it auditory. Like they just hear things and they hear voices and they pay attention to what they hear. So each of us is a little bit different um, in how it works for us. So feel free to adapt it to what works best for you. But beyond the act of imagination, it includes paying attention to your dreams. So I was a person who didn't remember any dreams. Like maybe one time a year I'd have a dream that I remembered. But I've noticed that my recall of my dreams has gone up since I started making a point of keeping a dream journal and writing down what I dreamed about, regardless of whether I remember or not. And eventually, the more you do that, the more you remember. I think your brain just takes the cue and is like, okay, he's treating these as important, so we'll make a point of remembering it. So as long as you, as soon as you wake up, trying to journal what you um, experience. So you can record it, like make a voice recording or write it down. Um, just as long as you're giving your mind the signal that you think that's it's important, it'll start treating it like it's important. Now, obviously, dreams can be a little bit weird, so take that into consideration, too. Sometimes you're not going to have dreams that you don't get a whole lot out of. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the basis of it. There's more advanced things like astral projection, which I would coin out-of-body experiences. Supposedly, there's a couple of people who figured out a way to have very, very, very vivid out-of-body experiences. Um, I have not <laughs> been capable of doing that despite efforts, but it's not necessary. If you can do that, great. I mean, sounds like a lot of fun to me. Um, there's books like Robert Monroe's book, um, Journeys Out of the Body. That's a very interesting read um, and possibly gives you some practical tips on how to do that. If you Google search astral projection and how to do it, there's subreddits on reddit dedicated to it there's plenty of information out there and books that have been written on the subject astral projection obviously goes into super woo woo territory so if you if you're comfortable with that then feel free to look at it, it it's um very interesting stuff that being said i'm trying to think if there's any other methods that i haven't gone over so yeah the basics are keeping a dream journal and doing the act of imagination obviously it takes a lot of time and some privacy. I have breaks at my job that go up to 30 minutes, and so that's when I choose to do it. And I do it almost daily, but doing it daily isn't a requirement. I think that you might just want to based off of it. It ends up being a little bit fun. So that being said, I'll wrap it up. Um, we'll probably return to this subject later on, um, especially if people express interest in it or email me wanting to know a little bit more, but I also recommend for books as to read is, is the Red Book by Carl Jung. It's informative on to how he did it and what he experienced, and I think once you practice it, you'll notice that there's definitely similarities there. Uh, Robert Monroe's Journeys Out of the Body, 
Um, you can pick up Michael Harner's um, Way of the Shaman, I believe the book is called, as long as you understand the problematic nature of it, but it's got useful tech there. So the things that he's teaching are not ineffective. You could, you could do much worse, um, just as long as you recognize the appropriate nature of it, which I think we've talked about enough, so I don't need to rehash that. Um, but yeah, try those things out. I'm interested to hear your experiences. If any of you feel like you're going crazy or, or, um, need some advice on it, don't worry about it so much. Uh, feel free to shoot me an email at newagerade at gmail.com with suggestions or also questions. Like I'm super happy to engage with you guys on this kind of material and we'll revisit things later. Now, the next episode, I'm hoping to get something out next week, but I'm currently in the middle of a change of location in terms of my living situation. Um, and said process is extended over a month and a half and involves my current home being shown for sale while I'm in the process of getting ready to move and moving things around. So things might get busy enough that I don't have time to record. I, of course, will give it a try. Um, but if something, if it seems a little bit delayed, that's why. And I think the next subject we'll go over is some of the new agey stuff that I found useful. Um, we'll look at the new age in terms of positive and not so positive stuff that I found effective. And because it's, it's a weird... <laughs> You have the dangerous side of it that tells you to ignore medical science telling you that vaccines don't work and that, you know, you can cure yourself with essential oils. That's the dangerous side. And then there's the positive side of it that's more along the lines of affirmations and meditations that can really help you. can improve your mental and physical health, depending, like, there's the placebo effect is a real thing. And I think that's what New Age employs a lot of. They just don't call it that. But yeah, we'll take a look at that and hopefully we'll find some more useful tech that we can all employ in our own spiritual lives. Thanks for listening. Um, if you guys want to help support the podcast, um, obviously there's the Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash newhraid. You can support it through the Anchor links as well. And for those of you who don't want to support it monetarily, there's always the option of uh, giving good ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. That seems to help jettison podcasts <laughs> in terms of uh, showing up when people search for things on spirituality or, or the new age and stuff. So that would help me out greatly. And I appreciate you listening in the first place. It's We're only above 40 plays at the moment, but that's still phenomenal to me. I didn't expect that many people to tune in. So I'm grateful. And we will see you next week.